Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Joel chapter 3 or chapter 4, depending on your Bible. Um, And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. May God bless the reading of his word. So, today we are, in a technical sense, finishing Joel, though we'll come back next week just as an overview of what we've learned from the book overall. But these are the last few verses. Um, And Joel... He's been like normal prophets that we've read. We've read Amos. Um, Lots of judgment, lots of um, restoration, lots of everything. And I think it's important that he ends, or that God ends with Joel in this way. And you'll see what I mean as we continue. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. These concluding verses of Joel focus on what was previously declared. Um, As we remember, God is their refuge. Rather than having fear of God or fear of any of their enemies, the people of Israel can rest assured in the supremacy of God and his power, which is for them rather than against them. So it is in this way that they shall know that Yahweh the Lord is their God. His dwelling place is in Zion, and he calls it my holy mountain. And this represents the temple mount in Jerusalem. In Judaism, this is the holiest spot in the world, and as it is a place where God, God dwells on earth. This is further established as Jerusalem, the whole city, will be declared as holy. Just as the temple is the holiest spot on earth, so Jerusalem is the holiest city on earth. It is not only the capital of Israel and later Judah, it is also where God reigns from. Because of this, because God in his power dwells in Jerusalem, and specifically Zion in Jerusalem, there will never be any who pass through it again. And this last point does not go against foreigners, but it represents those who would seek to destroy it. Never shall an enemy go through there again. Now verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. In that day represents the future day of the Lord. Once the destruction of the enemies has been accomplished, the land itself will be healed of all of its ills that had uh, gone through previously. God has promised to bring restoration. And that restoration takes center stage as the agricultural harms of the previous chapters um, come to a close. So the mountains, they begin dripping of sweet wine, and the hills flowing with milk. 
These represent agricultural blessing on the people. Wine representing a, a luxury trade good and milk representing a trade commodity are being produced greater than the full supply. There is enough not only for trade, but for all the people of the land. The stream beds represent wadis, these dry valleys and ravines. Thus, those areas which have little or no water are going to flow with water instead. Thus, all the land will receive the benefit of water, which is so essential for farming and general agricultural communities. Finally, a fountain appears from the house of the Lord, and that's the temple. This will bring forth clean, refreshing water down into the valley of Shittim. It is likely that this valley was a well-known dry valley around Jerusalem. As such, even this will be well-watered from the Lord himself. This valley may even be a wadi and nar, um, which is between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, though that is only speculation. The point is, is that this place of dryness will have water. Verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Um, throughout Israel, Israelite and Judean history, there were a number of enemies which harassed the kingdoms. Few, however, harassed them more than Egypt and Edom. Um, Egypt, as you remember, was the land of the Exodus where God led his people out of bondage and slavery, showing his great power above any other power. Edom, meanwhile, was a nation Amos also prophesied against in Amos 1-2. through Thus, these two nations who have attacked and come against God's people will become lands of desolation and wilderness. While Judah will become a place of peace, of abundance, um, and of great blessing, these places will be cast down. The reason for God's judgment against them is the violence they have done. They have shed innocent blood by attacking Israel and Judah. As such, these nations will experience the judgment for their war crimes against the people of God. Alrighty, last two verses, 20 and 21. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So what of Judah? Well, Judah will be inhabited forever. Though these pagan nations who have been enemies for so long should be disbanded, and all by all accounts destroyed, Judah will remain. Jerusalem will be a city for all generations, indicating that it is not... Uh, come to desolation or devastation the way that these other uh, nations have. It shall remain whereas all the other nations fall to ruin. Ultimately, the prophetic message of Joel concludes with the recognition that God will avenge their blood. It is interesting the way that Joel phrases it. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. Um, This simply means that God will avenge those who have not been avenged previously. Those who have been at the hands of corruption... Those who have suffered unjustly, God will in the end avenge them and bring justice, true justice. The final statement from Joel and from the Lord is that the Lord dwells in Zion. Because the Lord dwells in Zion, the people can be sure that it will not fall. Though any other nation whose gods may dwell in their cities should fall, Jerusalem will not. 
This is coming right off the heels of the final day of the Lord in which all the nations rise up against God's justice um, and his righteousness and his judgment. Thus the final statement is one of great hope. For though a great enemy may come against the holy city of Jerusalem in that day, in the end it will last. It will last not because of its own power, nor because of the people who dwell within it, but because the Lord dwells in Zion. He is their refuge, not their walls or their arms, but God himself. So in that day, they can be sure of victory because God is with them, and he is greater than any other. Alrighty, main point. The main point of these concluding verses of Joel is to bring home a few different themes uh, found throughout Joel's prophecies. The first is the day of the Lord in judgment. Um, The people of God were going to face their own day of the Lord in judgment, but ultimately turned in repentance and faith. In this, they were spared. Now we see those who do not turn. Those pagan nations who refuse to worship God, and because of that, they will face judgment in full. Those, however, who do belong to God will not have anything to fear in that day, as God will be with them, dwelling in his city, being their refuge and their foundation. So, application points. Have we talked about judgment yet? (laughs) That was the only thing I could think of for this first one. (laughs) I thought everyone would laugh. Man, I'm not getting it today, am I? No jokes. All right. So, we're here in the Prophets. And wouldn't you know it, judgment is being discussed again. I think that if any of the prophets were preachers today, they would likely get many eye rolls from their congregations or from those who they were proclaiming their message to. Why? Because the repetitiousness of their points. Over and over and over again, we have discussed the concept of judgment, as well as other themes. Yet maybe that is something we get very wrong. Sometimes it seems we expect new and exciting things to occur every week. We want new stories, new ideas about God, new concepts of religion. Yet maybe the best thing for us is not something newer, something that we may want, but instead something we need, something we need to hear, something which God clearly wants us to consider since he spoke it through his prophets over and over and over again. So we may get tired of talking about judgment or hearing about judgment. We may get even a little frustrated. God, don't we understand it by now? But I would suspect maybe we don't quite understand it all yet. Maybe we haven't even begun to grasp the significance of judgment. The reality that there will come a time when nations rise up directly against God and God's people. And that God himself will intervene against these enemies. Maybe hearing that over and over and over again will do something far more for us than we currently realize, and that is give us hope that God is a just God. Maybe it will cause us to remember that God is not going to let injustice reign. He is not going to allow the unrighteous to win the day, but instead he will step in. And he will bring vengeance and justice for those who had received injustice. In the New Testament, we remember Paul saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
This is what we're seeing here and now. This is why Christians who have been called to relative uh, lives of peace can bless those who curse, as Christ taught, and who can seek peace instead of vengeance. The reason for it is that we know that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. He will not let unrighteousness last. Instead, he will step in and he will bring about judgment from the right vantage point of righteousness. This is what we see today. When God judges these specific nations for their evil, the same is the case for every other nation. All the nations were condemned because of their evil. In fact, no nation except the nation which belongs to God is called righteous or good or holy. Instead, only the children of Israel receive the, uh, the refuge of God. What does this say about our nation then? And all the other nations around us? It reminds us that all nations are to be judged for what they do, including our own. So what should we do? Well, we need to be faithful in what God has called us to by proclaiming the gospel, seeking his justice, to making an impact on our societies in which we live here and now, knowing that apart from us there would be darkness. For as Christ says in Matthew, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. He says this about us because he is with us. And because he is with us, we know that it is true. It is good for us to love the nations in which we live. However, we must make sure that we also love the nation properly. If we love this nation, we will be bold to proclaim its ills. If we love the nation, we will be as ready to condemn it as to rejoice over it. If we are to love the nation, then we would be best to seek to transform the culture by the gospel of grace, rather than letting the culture dictate what we believe. If we don't, if we choose the easier path, the path of least resistance, or if we choose to love the nation in a way which is borderline idolatrous, then not only will we be a detriment to the culture, but we will also be damning all of the society in which we live to a righteous God who will not let sins go unpunished. Now before we go too much further, I do want to address something. I know some might be saying, you're being too hard on America. We just had July 4th. And I'm going to say, hold on to that thought for just a second. I want you to then turn your thoughts toward this direction. I want you to think of the prophets. Consider Joel. Consider Amos. Consider Jeremiah, if you've ever read Jeremiah. What has been one of the major themes within these prophets of Israel and Judah? Not just them, but all of them. The answer is, they proclaim not only against pagan nations, but their own. In fact, the prophets spent just as much time condemning Israel and Judah for their evils as they did other nations. We can be no different. We have been called to be salt and light, to be those who stand against the darkness, whatever form that may take, for the sake of Christ. Ultimately, the nations will face judgment, including America. So, let us seek to love our nation and every other nation by being faithful to Christ, first and foremost, in what he has called us to do. Let us seek to be transformers in our society, showing it the greater way of the gospel in all ways. And if the nations be damned, then let them not be for our lack of courage to faithfulness. Alrighty, this leads us to our second point, and I'm going to apologize in advance. 
It's philosophical. I don't know if I understand it. <laughs> it's one of those things I wrote. Let's find out how it goes. Knowing God. Yay. The second thing that comes to mind from these verses is something we find in the first verse we looked at today. And in it we find, so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, the purpose of the Lord working in these miraculous ways, judging those outside of the faith and for being a refuge for those who are inside of the faith, is so that the people would know that he is the Lord. I find that worth considering. Too many within our culture today, both inside and outside of the church, tend to delegitimize something which is very important, and that is knowledge. Not only is knowledge important, but also how we know, and how we know what we know, and how we can know what we know is true. These kinds of questions have slowly been losing ground in our society as a whole, and we see the repercussions. So let me give you an example. How many have had the privilege of knowing individuals or having conversation with individuals who believe in God but don't live as though he exists? Anyone? Or um, how about those who claim to believe in Christ and yet show no evidence of their belief by how they live? Has anyone ever seen any of these? Or how about this? Have you ever had the experience of being asked by someone, yeah, but you don't know God exists. You just have faith that he exists. And we all know that faith is not knowledge, as knowledge can only be gained through verifiable evidence, through such means as science and empirical evidence. Okay, maybe that last one. <laughs> maybe the last one. You might not have been told that in so many words. But the point is, there are individuals who believe these things and leave, live these ways. The problem that we have as Christians is that the scriptures tell us it is not an unreasonable, unreachable faith in God, which we possess. Instead, it tells us that we can actually know God and that God has made himself known. While the culture around us may have a theory of knowledge... The truth is, so does Christianity, and it begins with God himself. In that sense, Christianity is not only faith-based belief, it is knowledge-based belief. It claims certain knowledge about the world around us, and not only claims this knowledge, but claims that it is true. So we live in contention with our current society because it tries to delegitimize this knowledge we possess. It claims that what you possess is not true knowledge, but instead it is merely belief. Meanwhile, it claims to be knowledge what is founded on belief itself. Let me give you the philosophical example. There is this underlying belief within our culture that true knowledge is only gained by our five senses, empirically that is, and through scientific method. Thus, for everything which cannot be studied under a microscope, it is a matter of belief, and therefore we cannot be considered true knowledge. 
Now, what is the biggest problem with that understanding of knowledge? Think about it for just one second. What's the biggest problem with saying that you can only know things that are empirically verifiable? The answer is that it's self-defeating. You can't take that kind of theory of knowledge that we can only gain knowledge through science and with our senses and then examine it with your science and with your senses. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Um, Thus, you are placing your belief that this theory of knowledge is truth. And that's the ultimate irony. Since according to them, belief itself is not true knowledge. It's, It's done. It can't be thought as reasonable. Thus, knowledge must be more than just our senses and our ability to use scientific method because if it weren't, we wouldn't even know that the above theory of knowledge is true because such theories are what we call abstract by definition. So knowledge is not just something which can be verified scientifically. It is much, much more. When Christianity then says, it's okay, that it says uh, what it says about knowing God and being known by God, then it is not so much that the Christian who has the burden of proof, but the person who is trying to delegitimize knowledge. They must prove to us that our understanding of knowledge and knowing is wrong. So far, none have been able to do so. Not one. In the end, this kind of understanding leads to a serious problem for society in general. If knowledge is only understood in the five senses in the scientific way, then it allows moral relativity. It allows societies to embrace whatever sexual or sociological behavior people want because then morality itself is not absolute because you can't verify it. Since our society has come under the influence then um, of such a concept of knowledge as this, people live how they want, in whatever way they want. They can claim to follow Jesus and not live the way he tells us in faith and righteousness, even though the scriptures clearly teach that those who do live in such a way are not of the faith. They justify themselves by thinking a way contrary to Christ and what the Bible itself teaches. It's not only those who claim Christ either, but all of society has fallen to this kind of thinking. And we see it every day. So what does this mean for us? It means that God can be known. It means that we can be sure that we do know God. It means that when God says that he has revealed himself and done things in the world, that we can know them and know him. And he means this literally. It is not just faith-based. He wants us to know him with all of who we are, with our hearts and minds, our bodies, our souls. In this way, Christianity is far superior to other belief systems because it covers everything in life. Ultimately, this should give us a great deal of encouragement. It means that we are not called to blindly follow something, but that we are supposed to look ask questions, and have understanding, and that is okay to do. We can explore, we can seek wisdom, gain knowledge about the great God who has revealed himself. We are not only seekers of such things, but we can actually say we're finders too. 
So be encouraged then by the great wealth which is our faith. Be encouraged to remember the actively known God. To learn more about him and seek him daily. He is there and he is not silent. He has made himself known and he wants us to know him. That, of course, leads to our final application from this passage of Joel. Yes, we talked about judgment. We've even talked about knowledge and its significance. Now, however, we talk about something which is, uh, makes this particular knowledge so important. And that is, with this knowledge comes the realization that God is among us. We see this explicitly in the text. God dwells in Zion. This means it is his holy place on the earth. Who else is on the earth? We are his people. Thus God dwells among us once the judgment has come and gone. And we can know that all the promises have been fulfilled because he remains with us. We can know all the blessings because the one who gives the blessings will be for us and with us forever. That might fall. Those blessings, the ceasing of curses, the end of enemies, the end of famine, the end of drought, these blessings come upon those who belong to the people of Israel. And as we have seen times aplenty, those who are in Christ are the children of Israel through faith. Thus we have this promise of a prosperous kingdom in which we dwell with our God and take hold of it as easily as those to whom it was first prophesied to. Which is made evident in the book of Revelation which discusses all of this. Same truths as the eternal fountain. God is among us. In our current time and place, it can be hard for us to grasp that reality. It can be hard for us to grasp the idea of seeing God, not dimly, but fully. It can be hard for us to seek uh, past the darkness around us. But we can be sure that there is light in the darkness. And that light is Jesus Christ, he who died so that we may live. Even now... We receive the first fruits of the coming time of abundance and blessing. For even now, if we are in Christ, then we have received the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who dwells within us. But even in this sense, it isn't complete as of yet. There is more of Himself to give us, more knowledge to be gained, more presence to be felt than what we have already begun to feel. In God, we have our eternal hope then. We have our eternal hope knowing that the promises which he has given are true. Knowing that they are true because we know the God who has promised. We know our just God will be just. And we know that he will be merciful and gracious and loving as well. Ultimately, I can think of no greater way for this prophetic book to close than with the words, The Lord dwells in Zion. Because it means he dwells with us and we dwell with him. My dear friends, don't forget to look forward to the day when all shall be made right. Don't keep your eyes in the darkness, but turn toward the great light of our God and know that the light 
is merely dawning before us. How great a light we shall find in him. How great the glory and the majesty of our God. Now and forevermore we will sing the graces of our God. Though the world should beat us down and the road seems dark and ominous, be encouraged to the faith, to the knowledge of our God. We do not strive in vain. It is all leading us somewhere beyond all of this, beyond all of us, and what we find there is greater and more marvelous than even our dreams can dream. Dear church, look forward to that future in our God. Do not take your eyes off of the prize. Instead, keep going each step more boldly than the last, giving into Christ until all your strength is spent. He has called us to glory. Let us not waste time, but let us seek his glory together now and forever, knowing the promise of our God, that not only will we know him, but we shall be with him forever. And so I think that that's a pretty good um, place to bring in the gospel, isn't it? Ellen's smiling, so I'm assuming it's a good place. <laughs> um, and that's the thing about Joel, is that, and all the prophets. And that's something that we tend to forget about the prophets, is that yes, they talk about the judgment. Yes, they talk about so much destruction which is going to occur. But then it ends. And the last thing that Joel tells us is, the Lord dwells in Zion. Um, and that's significant because of the gospel. It's only because of the gospel that that's even significant. How about we go through it? With the gospel beginning with our origins, we are created in the image of God. We have this divine presence on us, this image on us. We're able to reason, to be known, to know, to love. We're able to dream. We're able to be creative. Who, all, who had all of those attributes before we did? God. Well before we came into existence. And because of that, we have dignity, worth, sanctity to human life. And that's a good thing. That means that you are important, exactly as you are. And how many times do you go through your life and you think, man, if I were just someone else? I've done it. I don't know. I've done it a few times. Yesterday. <laughs> we all have. Or if maybe we've We've gotten into fights with people and we're thinking, oh man, if I just was in a different life, I wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. And, you know, they're your child of two years old. <laughs> I've never done that yet. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. You know, we have these thoughts and we think, oh man, if only. And then we forget, no, because if only, then we would have been that way. God would have created us in that moment. But instead, he placed you exactly where you are. Not in the 12th century, but here in the 21st century for a reason. And that's awesome. Because it means that you are perfect, or you're, who you are is important to God as you are. The problem is the fall. That we have all these wonderful attributes with God and we're able to choose. And the problem is, is that we did choose. We chose to sin against God and we've continued to make that choice ever since. And so we have these broken relationships with ourselves, with God, with 
the world around us with our, our fellow human beings, our children, our parents, our grandparents, anyone around us. We have these broken, really crushed relationships. And it's all because we choose to sin. And that sin, it causes a guilt to come upon us. And we are deserving of judgment because of that. And that judgment is death. As Romans 3 tells us. So, in a way, we're supposed to be like Edom and Egypt. In our text today. We're supposed to be the ones who are remain desolate. And in destruction. With no hope of future generations. And no hope of a forever kingdom. So what can we do? If that's our state, and if we know our sin, and if we know we've lied and cheated and stolen, and if we know that we've killed, and we know that we've committed adultery in our hearts, and we know all of these things, what can we do? We're broken. Well, that's what, when we look and we realize what the Bible teaches, and that redemption has come not because of what we can do, but because of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ, he came, he died And he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. And that his atonement for our sins is a complete atonement. That means you don't have to work for it. That means if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's yours. You know how freeing that is to consider? That you don't have to work for it? That it's yours just by faith? And yeah... That causes you then to live in repentance. That causes you to want to live for God, doesn't it? It makes you more joyous to be involved with God because you know what he has done already. And that's what repentance means. That's why the Bible teaches us, okay, this is what it's going to look like if you've come to the faith. You'll live this way. And the reason why it says that and it knows that is because you could not live any other way but for your God once you understand what he has done. And that's awesome. Because all the weight is taken off of your shoulders. And that's what he wants. He wants to take it off. And so where does it all lead? It leads to the future which we read about today. There are two destinations in the future. There's the judgment of the nations. And then the refuge of God. And that's what it all comes down to. To those who are not in God, who do not have his refuge, then there will be judgment. There will be a second death. There will be a time when all of their sins are placed before God. And that'll be the end. But for those who are in Christ, when that time comes, do you know what happens? Christ comes forward. He looks at all that debt of sin and he takes it away. And then do you know where it leads? Into a kingdom that lasts forever. A kingdom which is eternal, is glorious. A kingdom in which our Lord dwells in Zion. And we don't have to look upon him any longer dimly, but fully. I don't know about you, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. It is wonderful, too, that we see it throughout the scriptures from beginning to the end. And so it's with that that I encourage you to consider all that we've read in Joel. I encourage you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you 
to seek out God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength because he's worthy of every bit of you. And you'll find that if you do, you'll find love, grace, peace, justice, righteousness, and all the things you've been missing. And it all comes from him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for your holy word in which we learn all the time of what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we are amazed, just as the apostles and your early disciples, the twelve, were amazed to consider that all the prophets were talking about you the whole time. And that in the end, you brought it to completion. That your son said, it is finished. And because of that, we can read Joel and we can understand judgment. And yet we can have hope from judgment because of you. So, Lord, let us seek you, and let us know that you are with those who do seek. And let us know, too, that you're able to be found, and that we can know you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we